Welcome to episode number 64 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Giver, a garage-born outdoors and apparel company. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver to learn more. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host today. I believe if you truly desire a fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. Today's guest is Gary Trauner, a serial entrepreneur, father, husband, community thought leader, and executive director of Silicon Coulard, a local nonprofit connecting entrepreneurs to all of the resources needed to succeed. Gary will share with us what he learned from his parents while growing up and how he and his wife have applied those lessons while raising their own kids here in the Valley. One important trait to teach your kids, which Gary will speak on in depth, is why we should teach our children humility. Gary, thanks for coming today. I was super excited, pumped when you accepted the invitation to be a guest. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, uh, it's fun to talk to people, get to learn what they want to know, and have people hear about my experiences and learn about other people. So it's always a great thing. It is fun to yeah. get to talk to people. It is. We don't have a we don't take the opportunity enough with technology nowadays. Oh, we'll just send an email instead of making a phone call. Well, for better or worse, I've really had the opportunity to talk to people over the years, especially being involved <laughs> in politics a little bit. So um, it turns out that that's one of my favorite things to do is just, you know, find out about people and listen and talk and you know, I'm one of those folks that we go to the airport when we're traveling and we're waiting at the gate and my wife looks at me and I'm just talking to the people next to me, right? You know, I start a conversation and afterwards she's like, what were you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. What else am I going to do? I'm going to talk to people. So so I enjoy it. I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Drives her nuts. Yeah, my wife is used to it. Yes. Yeah, now our kids would just jabber jaw to anybody right it's great <laughs> that actually is a really good thing though for them to see because I, you know our kids the same way we have two boys mm-hmm. mostly grown one's 26 is grown and the other one's uh sophomore in college um and i think just because of the exposure and because of what we've done and my wife's done you know they're at ease around people and especially around grown-ups even when they were kids and that's a pretty cool thing if you can do that indeed yeah so we're here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Let's start off with what is your connection? How did you land here in Jackson Hole? Yeah, pretty interesting story, I think, but maybe not atypical for back in the day. Grew up on the East Coast, suburban New York, suburbia, 30 miles, 25 miles outside of New York City. My folks were not skiers. Uh, so one of my best friend's parents in the town I grew up in had purchased one of the first condos, I believe, in the village, or one of the early condos in Teton Village. And so when we were kids in the early 70s, it was easier for them to take me and maybe another friend or two along and keep their son occupied when they came on vacation out here. So I, first time I ever skied was here. Actually, great story. We came out, first time, I'd never been on skis before. I was probably 12 or 13. And um, we got to the village, we got to the condo, too late to ski for the day. But we were we could go in and buy get rentals at the rental store, mm-hmm. so in the village. So we got rentals. I think it might have been at Wilderness. I'm not sure. And we hiked up the Beginner's Hill, Eagles Rest. And I had never had skis on. Didn't even know how to 
put them on, right? Didn't know how to put on safety straps at the time, right? You know, on the bindings. But my friends kind of talked me down and I skied one run down the beginner slope. And then the next day we had arranged for a lesson or my friend's father had. But it wasn't until the afternoon. It was a half day. So they convinced me that I could take the tram Uh um, in the morning. (laughs) And this is 70 what? 72 maybe? 72. All right. Big mistake. Uh, let's just say we survived. There were four of us, and two of us had never skied and had a lesson coming up. And But we never showed for the lesson, and uh, my friend's dad had to call for the ski patrol because we were somewhere around Central Chute, just hadn't gotten down Rendezvous Bowl by traversing and falling and then traversing and falling. And had gotten stuck on a rock band somewhere and didn't know what to do. And finally got pulled out by the ski patrol and made the lesson. So I survived, but it was an interesting first day. (laughs) It only got better from there. Glad to hear. (laughs) So over the years, Jackson had sort of become the place for my friend group from growing up, who are still basically my best friends in many ways, through college. And we always had a place to come to to enjoy ourselves as whatever we did when we were in college and after. Um, So over the years, Jackson sort of became our place and became in many ways my place. After graduating from college, not that many years after, one of those friends um, and I bought a condo in the Aspens. We had no money. I'm not really sure how we did it. (laughs) We rented it out, you know, got a mortgage. And so the connection was just there. And I knew over time, I think deep down somewhere that I would end up here, but consciously didn't realize that until the time came. Cool. Yeah. I have an interesting question about your friends that bought one of those first condos in the village. At that time, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, the resort, whatever it was named, if it's Jackson Hole Mountain Resort back then, they were also handing out or offering lifetime, lifetime passes. Did you- I don't know. I, I clearly don't have a lifetime pass. Okay. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether my friend's parents did that or not. You know, we were kids. I, if it, I don't even know if we had known whether we would have done it because we were kids, but I know it was a heck of a deal. So Yeah. I've seen one before. I wish. Have you seen one? I've I never – I don't even know that I've ever It looked like one. a business card. Yeah. Crazy. But and, and here's the funny part. So I'll get in a little trouble here, but what the heck? Um, sure, let's do it. My friend, who was my best friend in fifth grade, we we had sort of, you know, we weren't quite best friends by the time high school came around. We were still very close, but you know, we were we had our own friend groups. He had certain. It's the seventies. <clears throat> he was kind of getting into a little bit of trouble with drugs and partying and whatever. So he had an older sister who was ten years older than him. And she was living in the condo in Teton Village with her boyfriend at the time. So she was, what, 27, 20, whatever. And my friend's parents decided that um, in order to sort of straighten him out a little bit, they would send him to high school here in Jackson Hole in 1974, probably, or five. And, you know, I think for anyone who knew Jackson back then knows that that probably was a tactical error. Nonetheless, I used to come out here and ski with him. And, you know, I mean, I skied with all the locals, you know, George Huffsmith, all these kind of hardcore grow up Jackson guys back then. And then with a bunch of the, the Air Force guys, I was never an Air Force guy because for me, it was keep up or die. I mean, I was just trying to survive. Um, <laughs> That's how I learned how to ski. But it was great. It was really just a great intro to Jackson. It was a different time and a different place in some ways. And and I've always loved it and still do. 
How do you not love this place? Yeah. I mean, it's changed. We can talk about that. But uh, it has changed. You know, the core is still pretty cool. Though. Yeah. yeah. It, and it's the people that make up the core. Totally. And the people are still true. Right. And I will say that of my whole friend group, I, I might be voted the least likely one to have ended up out here um, full time. But nonetheless, here I am. And when did you and your family move out here full time? So full time was eighty nine ninety. Okay. So 30-ish years ago. Cool. Um, you know, owned a condo from probably 84, 83 on, but bought a house. I think we closed in 90, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Been in the same house ever since. Fantastic. Since you've been here, you've had several different careers. And yeah. gone for a few different Careers as well. So it's, I, I gave a, I, I go back and talk at my school every once in a while. And I went to Colgate University back east in mm-hmm. upstate New York. And um, I've talked to sort of, they have a senior day where people come and talk about um, careers and what's going on in the world and what to expect and whatever. And I remember one time I went back there and the person who spoke before me was a corporate lawyer and he was older. And, um, you know, his whole view was, you know, put your nose to the grindstone for 50 years and, you know, you'll, you'll make it, um, which was, you know, for him, great. Um, and I got up there and it was sort of point counterpoint. Uh, you know, me, I'm driven by passion. And anyone who looks at my career, it's not a linear path. Um, so I kind of gone where I think my passion has driven me. And that's everything from starting up some entrepreneurial companies here, helping co-found OneWest.net along with Jeff Rice, who's the owner of Whole Grocer, and Michael Pruitt, co-founding a, one of the first commercial trust companies, investment trust companies in the state of Wyoming. Really? Here called Teton Trust Company. I've been the COO of the hospital. Uh, yeah, I've been involved in politics. You know, I'd run for school board. I was the chair of the school board for a while. Thought, yeah, why not go from school board to the major leagues? So I ran for U.S. House in 2006. Uh, lost by a hair. I'm not so sure. I lost, actually. That's a whole nother story, water under the bridge, but there were voting issues. It was crazy. So I've run a couple of times and most recently ran for U.S. Senate. I've been the ED of our local lacrosse club. I played lacrosse in college. Um, it's grown. That was such a fun thing to do. So, you know, I, to me, it's about enjoying life and trying to do good at the same time, if that makes sense. Those are kind of the driving factors, I would say. My my wife likes to say that um, she owns an interior design firm here and has been incredibly successful, super hard worker. And uh, she grew up with nothing, really. Um, Her dad was an iron worker. Um, So we grew up different demographics, whatever. And she likes to say that you. she used to think that she married up. And clearly it turns out that it was the opposite. I married (laughs) up. And she's right about that. So... I'm glad that has been clarified with it. Yeah, very important. Yes. And so going back to where you are now, you're now the ED of Silicon Coulard. I am. And Silicon Coulard is? Silicon Coulard is a nonprofit um, that supports entrepreneurship in the Tetons region. And, you know, it's not just limited to Jackson Hole. We like to think of the Tetons region, you know, sort of Idaho, right? You know, over the other side of the pass and in Driggs and Victor and and going down to northern Lincoln County and Alpine and, and maybe even northern Sublet and even potentially over the over Togedy East. So um, we support entrepreneurship, but my focus, as I mentioned about being a little bit of a do-gooder maybe, 
I've I've been at it for about half a year since I took some time off after my U.S. Senate race last year. Obviously, I'm I didn't win because I'm sitting here with you right now doing this. <laughs> but I took this on about six months ago, and you know our mission. Well, it's we align we seek to align entrepreneurship <clears throat> with community vision to promote a diverse and healthy economy for current and future generations. Great mission. And we have awesome programs. The programs we have, we have a chance meetings networking event that's free for people. We have a team's mentoring program where we get people that have been successful in business and they match up with startups and entrepreneurs, ventures to, to mentor them as they go forward. We have an angel investing group that can help get people to the ultimate goal, which is to have enough money to start their business and run their business. Um, we have Pitch Day, which I think has been a big hit in this community to have, have uh, companies present in front of the public and then get voted for prizes. So we have some great stuff. We have the Startup Intensive with CWC, which is like a boot camp for beginner entrepreneurs. They're incredible programs, and they've been incredibly successful, but they can be done anywhere, any town USA. The question is, how do we relate those programs to our special community and what makes this place special and what drew most of us here. So I'm working on that. We're trying to find the right way to say, okay, look, it's great to be an entrepreneur, but you know, how are you giving back to the community? Are you paying a living wage? Are you making sure that your employees are fulfilling, have fulfilling jobs? Are you giving back in other ways to, you know, the environment or natural resources or whatever, you know, working on community issues, transportation, housing, whatever the case may be. So that's a challenge. Uh, big, big challenge. Big challenge. Lots to do I right like there. I like big challenges. And has it been established what the living wage is for here in Jackson? Uh, no. I mean, I think uh -huh. the living wage is, is diff different things to different people, mm -hmm. obviously, in some ways. And we're especially challenged, obviously, <clears throat> with real estate prices being what they are, which is why we're looking at this from a regional perspective. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone, you know, I think this is my view, and I've talked to some of our electeds about, local electeds about this, is, you know, the, the public needs to be educated first and foremost. And I think we should be honest with the public. And I'm not saying that our electeds are dishonest, but I'm not so sure we've really been straightforward in what choices we do and don't have as, as members of the public. So, <clears throat> for example, if we subsidize affordable housing, which is absolutely a fair choice to want to do as a community, um, we should understand that we're doing that in most communities because employers aren't paying their people enough to be able to afford that. Um, and when I ran for federal office, you know, there's a stat out there that Walmart and, and McDonald's, mm -hmm. half of the employees at those companies uh, are on some type of government program, right? So mm -hmm. taxpayers are subsidizing the profits of Walmart and, and McDonald's. Well, or, at least they get the best price possible. Well, we get cheap prices. But, you know, <laughs> they're doing it because those companies aren't paying their workers who are working a 40-hour week enough to make it on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, that's wrong. Now, it's different here a little bit because I think if you take uh, a restaurant, a casual fast-dining restaurant, any of the bunch that we have here, um, you know, housing, the median house in Raft of J, what, a million dollars, whatever it is, it's going to be almost impossible to pay enough of a wage to have someone afford that house. So it's not really all on the employers, but we need to be aware of those decisions when we subsidize and what choices we have before we make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's challenging, I think. The other thing I think is really hard to say, but not everybody gets to live here, right? I mean, I, 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 I want to have a thriving middle class. 
I came here and didn't, you know, was just a regular dude wanting to ski with my girlfriend, then girlfriend, now wife. Um, but not everyone gets to live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Never, not everyone gets to live in Beverly Hills. Not everybody gets to live in Palo Alto. You know, it, the demand to be here will always exceed our ability to supply. Mm -hmm. And that's a fact. So what does that mean? Let's acknowledge that. And what choices do we make based on that? And I'm not saying I have the answers necessarily, but I think we need to be open and honest that those are our choices and that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure everyone sees that yet, for better or worse. Very good points. Very good points. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you ran for two offices and it was the U.S. House, House of Representatives and then the U.S. Senate. Correct. What did you learn from the first time that inspired you to say, I'm going to do this again? But I've learned some things, so I feel like I can do it better. Well, actually, so so I, I've, I've run three times. Oh, okay. Sorry Twice about for House. Okay. Once. So I, in okay. 2006, I ran for U.S. House. Came within less than half a percentage point of, you know, maybe the biggest upset in the country that cycle because Wyoming, by registration numbers, percentages, is the most Republican state in the country. The differential between Republicans and Democrats um, is the biggest in Wyoming, or at least it was, of any state in the country. And I was running as a D. Um, and I lost by less than half a percentage point, 0.4 percent roughly, whatever it was. So, um, and again, voting issues. So, you know, and I did it really by just going door to door. I had never run for anything higher than school board. I had a couple of good advisors that were Wyoming folks, and they were like, you've got no name recognition you know the old saying about Wyoming, it's a really small town with really long streets. Mm -hmm. And the way that you're going to get – people are going to get to know you is by you being in their town for a week at a time or maybe less. But, you know, for concentrated stretches and just knocking on doors and meeting folks, which is what I did. And it was great. So um, came really close. And, the, and, you know, how do you not run again? One of the things that my wife Terry and I didn't really think through – there were a couple things we didn't really think through when you decide to run for that level of office – one of them is that everybody knows you, and you don't necessarily know everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. So you run into people, and they're like, hey, Gary, how you doing? And you're like, I know I should know you, but I don't. I'm so sorry. Um, but the other one is really people put their hopes and, and dreams in you as a candidate. People are looking for leadership, and they want good people. Um, and so having come so close – it was really difficult to say I'm not going to do that again right away. So I did in 2008, but I knew that it was going to be more difficult because just to get into a little bit of the demographics of politics in this state, presidential years, you get extra turnout, 20 to 25% extra turnout in the state of Wyoming, roughly. If you think about it, by definition, those voters that are turning out in presidential years but not in off years don't really care about anything else other than the presidential. Otherwise, they would vote in off years. Mm -hmm. So what they tend to do is vote for president and then go party line down ballot. And in this state, that's not a good thing for me. So in the last poll in the Casper Star Tribune in my race in 2008, I was within the margin of error, but I was ahead of my opponent, Cynthia Lemus, um, and I got swamped by turnout. So I thought I was done. Uh, went back to real life. You know, I'm not a politician. I, I had no interest in being a lifetime politician, making it my career. I wanted to make a difference. So, um, you know, 10 years later, my kids basically looked at me and said, Dad, this is not good. 
we're worried for the future. You're the one who's come the closest at the federal level of anyone in Wyoming and, you know, as a D in the last 30 or 40 years. What are you going to do? <laughs> and, you know, I, I knew it was going to be tougher than it had been before. But if you've got the wherewithal and the ability and the desire, um, I kind of felt an obligation. So I did. And what did I learn that would make it better? I don't know. I think I got more comfortable being out there and recognizing that it's not about me. It shouldn't be about me. But when you are a candidate for high office, people make it about you. And coming to grips with that um, makes it a little bit easier to go out there and, and, and try and convince people that you, you're the one who can make a difference. So that was and, – and it came – uh, you know, it came from a really personal place why I ran. Um, my younger brother was truly one of the good people in the world, uh, really smart, went to a great college, uh, got into a great business school, deferred, blew off that school because he was a good golfer and wanted to see if he could make it on the tour. He was an All-American golfer in college and uh, basically worked his way up playing in Europe and Asia and eventually played in the PGA, played in some PGA tour events and played in the U.S. Open and then went to the doctor about 10 years later. And you know, it's a really long story, but basically brain tumor, you're going to die. And we were having, he was lived in Boulder, Colorado. And two years later, he passed away. And we were at his house in Boulder. He had a young daughter who was only two or two and a half when he passed, who's like my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and we were talking about, thank God he did what he did before he passed away. Can you imagine if he had sat in an office building and been told you're going to, you have a brain tumor, you're going to die. And he was like, I never did what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So we were driving across I-80 home from, from Colorado. And I looked at my wife and I was like, I want to make a difference. I want to run. And she thought, you know, County commissioner, or, I was like, yeah, my interests are a little, <laughs> a little different from that. <laughs> she almost drove off the road on that one. But <laughs> Um, that was it. It's really personal for me. So um, I want to make a difference. Way to keep your brother's, you know, his what he did in life alive by totally. by taking that that big step, that big leap. Yeah. It's huge. And and you know, I, I if I had thought about it, I might have, uh, you know, been daunted by it. But I think that driving force of life is short. Do what you want to do. He did that. Um, he'd be proud. You know. You like tear up a little bit, but you know, it really, it, it was the driving force. Absolutely. Right. I'm sure he would be very proud. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, <clears throat> you know, talking about politics, um, since you've been here in the state and since when I was living here, we actually had a democratic governor. We do. So we, anything's we, possible. We do. We tend to elect, you know, before um, Mark Gordon got in here, I mean, you know, three out of the last six governors have been Democrats. We do tend to elect Democratic governors and keep them close to the best. I think in in Wyoming, it's been a lot tougher to send someone with a D next to their name back to D.C. because folks in Wyoming, I you know, maybe feel like, oh, you're just going to go become Nancy Pelosi. You know, we've demonized all sorts of politicians on both sides of the mm -hmm. aisle. So in their view, you're going to be Ted Kennedy or Nancy Pelosi's best friend. And I can't do that. But if there's a governor close to home, we can do that. Um, you know, I I think that's wrong. I think politicians, 
use party labels and they hide behind their party labels, especially in states that tend to be more one party than not. And then they go, you know, I say it's, they say one thing, do another and hope no one's paying attention because <laughs> then they come home and they say, well, you and I are the same party. You better vote for me or else this guy's going to destroy America, my opponent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bunch of crap. So um, it's a challenge. That's the way it is. You got to live with it. I have to live with it in this state. Um, I've enjoyed every second being out there and um, wish I had made it, but I'll find a way to keep making a difference. Cool. I'm glad you will. I hope so. We're going to take a quick break, get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we are going to be back. Awesome. What is your passion? Do you know what it really means to give it your all? Well, the folks at Giver, this is their passion. It's what gets them out of bed every morning to chug a half gallon of coffee and eat a one pound burrito and give the rest of the day everything they just ate and more. Giver, to give it your all. Check out their selection of personalized, branded, kick-ass gloves and more at the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver, G-I-V-E-R. My pick last year was the Old Faithful Top. You have not experienced comfort until you pulled one of these bad boys on. Trust me. Now, go giver. So you've accomplished a lot, and I like what you said. Your path in life and career has not been very linear. linear. Right. Um, you've taken many different paths, and, and I love it. That's the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit right there. What drives you? What's your passion here? In, ter- in general? Sure. Well, like I said, I mean, I, you know, I'm just a – I grew up in a, in, in a house where – middle of three boys, um, and, and we were just engaged. You know, my parents were engaged. We talked about things, issues of the day. You know, my parents were never – politicians or anything my dad was a businessman my mom was a travel agent and and raised us as kids you know it's sort of a traditional 60s type of um, suburban life in some ways but um, I think they instilled this this view that you can make a difference if you're willing to step out and try and um, I hope I've instilled that in my kids uh, along with my wife Terry that we've instilled this thing that you know what go Go take risk, man. And, you know, you learn. If you don't get there, you learn by failure also. I mean, it's not fun necessarily failing. Um, you know, I started some companies that haven't succeeded. I've started them some that have um, or, you know, that have done all right. And uh, that's just part of what it is. But for me, it's wanting to make a difference. And I'll give you a great example. So, you know, I've been the CEO of the hospital here for a bunch of years. And it came to the point where it was, it was, it's, it was time. Uh, to move on. Um, the hospital is pretty political here. It's really the biggest employer, kind of full-time employer. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare is a really difficult industry to be in. Um, uh, you're dealing with people that, you know, obviously don't want to be in your building for any reason all the time, but you're also dealing with a lot of regulatory issues, et cetera. You're dealing with, uh, doc, you know, physicians who have different ideas on how to do things from administrators, from frontline nurses. There's, there's a lot going on. And so it came time, and I wasn't sure what was going on next. And I had started, been one of the founding board members on our lacrosse club, a youth lacrosse club. And we were looking for an ED, the board, our first ED. We had all just been a volunteer board with no employees. And they went through a process. And at the end of the day, you know, some of the board members and I had talked, and it was like, you know, what if you were interested? And, and um, they went through a whole hiring process. But at the end of the day, it sort of came down to me. And I, 
I wasn't so sure I wanted to do it at first. And I went home and, and Terry, who, who knows me better than I know myself, she's like, look, you're, you're kind of burned out on the hospital. You know, it was stressful. Um, you love kids. You love sports. You love lacrosse kind of of all sports. Um, why don't you do it? Why don't you give it a shot? You know, because there was a little ego involved. It's like, I'm not the ED of a youth sports club. That's not what I do. But I got the offer, decided to do it. And it was, in some ways, the best two years I've had in a long, long time. Because kids, right? I mean, all of a sudden, you're getting back to the basics of hanging around kids and hopefully having an impact on their lives in some way, shape, or form through sports in this case. But it can be other things. And I had forgotten that. So there's more than one way to make a difference. So true. Yeah. And I've always been torn between what I call the macro and the micro, right? The macro is running for Senate or House and trying to make a difference on this bigger level. The micro is how do you make a difference in your local community? And, and I think they're both powerful and meaningful if you do them well. Indeed. And you might influence a lot more people doing it on the micro level. Uh, you know, that's what you find out yeah. is, in fact, you know, you, I wanted to – I thought I could make a difference at being at the macro level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you certainly, in many ways, I think, have a much more uh, immediate and personal impact on touching lives in the local community, whether it's running a hospital and helping people with healthcare or lacrosse club or entrepreneurs in Silicon Coal So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm a graduate of the intensive program that you are. Sandy teaches. Nice. Indeed. It was yes. spectacular. It yeah. opened my world to a different perspective of business. Yeah. And I appreciate it so much. And we've become very good friends. Well, Sandy and Liza, you know, they've done such a great job in that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Sandy's approach in many ways of not just talking about the business aspects of mm-hmm. it, but also your values and, and sort of being in touch with what you really want to do and how you want to do it. Um it's critical, I think. You know, again, passion is the driver for me. And so if I'm passionate about something, I can, I, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to try and succeed, right? Um, you know, I think if I'm not as passionate, it's, it's, it's more difficult for me to motivate mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and, and Sandy lets you find your passion or helps you to do that, I think, That's in right. some ways. And it gives you that energy, that fuel, when you know that you've found your passion. What you need yeah. when you're on the road knocking on a lot of doors in a day and you're tired and you just don't want to talk to the next person, but you have to. Mm-hmm. And and it has to be fresh because your door is the first time I'm talking to you, even though I might have knocked on 200 doors prior. It's got to be just as fresh for you at your house as it was for the 200 people before. And when you've got that passion and you know you feel good about it, it's easier to do that, mm-hmm. which is really that. cool. Yeah. To learn more about Gary and Silicon Kular, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 64. I love hearing from my listeners and subscribers, so if you have feedback, questions, suggestions, send an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please remember to visit giver.com, that's G-I-V-E-R.com, to see what's happening in their world. I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Mori and my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing guru, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I really look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.